aren't, but that's okay. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we ask right now that you would breathe upon us. Come and move in this time and this space. We welcome you. Holy Spirit, would you accomplish the purpose for which the Father has sent you today? And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would touch our eyes and ears, that we would see and we would hear what you have to say to us today, and that it would take root in our lives and in the life of our church. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're returning back to a passage of Scripture that we looked at just a couple of months ago, and uh, looking at it again in a slightly different way. If you have your Bible, we're turning to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And we're going to read together the first four verses that are there. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel round his waist. This passage of scripture is a stunning passage and as we unpacked some of it in our time together on Good Friday, we began to see how incredibly breathtaking this picture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet is. It is a prophetic act. It is prophetic symbolism. It is a prophetic metaphor that points to and talks about what Jesus is going to do on the cross. And when we begin to see that, it's in a sense mind-blowing. But what brings a further wonder to this is the way that the story of this moment is written and therefore the way that the story of this moment is told. As John narrates this for us, he does so balancing a couple of perspectives. Before he begins to tell us about the events that are unfolding in the room, he begins to tell us what's going on in the hearts and the minds of the people in the room. If you look at it in the Bible, you'll see that from verse 4 onwards, it begins to talk about Jesus washing the disciples' feet and begins to talk about the conversations that came out of that and the teaching that followed that. He talks about what is happening in the room. But way before that, he spends three verses just telling us about what's going on in people's minds and in people's hearts. And when we looked at this in Good Friday, our anchor point was the opening verse of John, which reveals to us the inner workings of Jesus. He tells us, even shows us perhaps what's going on in Jesus' mind. And he records the knowledge of Jesus and how that knowledge then shaped his actions. Since Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So what we see is the knowledge of Jesus and how that then shaped his actions. Some alternative translations of this change the wording from he loved them to the end to he now showed them the full extent of his love. And so it's like here is the knowledge that Jesus has about it's the time of Passover, it's all the stuff that's going on, his hour has come, and that then shapes his actions. He then wants to show his disciples love all the way. And if you follow the journey of the passage, verse 2 then begins to show us what's going on in Judas's heart and mind and how that shapes his actions. 
It says the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, the gospel writer calls out here that the betrayal is attached to Judas. Judas puts his own gain above everything else. He focuses on self and focuses on self-preservation. But while the betrayal was an act of his choice and was his decision, the gospel writer points out that the root of that, the prompting for that, was rooted in the demonic. It started with a prompting and then it grew arms and legs within Judas's mind and within Judas's character and then it outworked itself in his actions and in his choice. And we don't have time to unpack this today and we may come back to it relatively soon. But the point that we want to make here is that this wasn't an instantaneous decision for Judas. He didn't just decide in the spur of the moment that this is what he was going to do. This was something that had already been prompted and was already outworking in his heart and in his mind and his thoughts. He had come up with a plan that he carefully executed. And the bigger point that we want to make here is that while we recognize that temptation to sin has a source, the choice and the decision of its outworking lies in our lap. While we recognize that the temptation to sin has a source, the responsibility for acting on that temptation lies with us. And while this betrayal is a really critical point in the story that's unfolding and how Judas gets up from the table and he goes and and he betrays Jesus and brings back the battalion to arrest him and all that kind of stuff, while that's a really critical part of the story, it's actually what the gospel writer presents to us next in John 13 that we spend our time focusing on this morning. Because as we steer into verse 3, we once again return to the thoughts of Jesus. So the passage opens by telling us what's going on in Jesus' thoughts. Then it tells us what's going on in Judas's heart. And then it comes back to Jesus again. And once again, we're showing the inner workings of his soul. And once again, we're showing what's going on in his mind and in his thoughts. We see where his mind's at and we see how that shapes what he does. And it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. As we read this insight and we get a glimpse again at what's going on within Jesus' inner being, we do notice a slightly different perspective in verse 3 compared to verse 1 when the passage opens. In verse 1, the knowledge of Jesus is presented to us in relation to what's happening around him. He knew it was just before the Passover festival. He knew that his hour had come for him to leave the world and return to the Father. So he showed them the full extent of his love. We're told here that Jesus understands the time that he's in. He understands what is happening round about him and what that means as well as its relevance within the overall plan and purpose of God. But when we arrive at verse 3, while we are told once again what is going through Jesus' mind, this time it's not in relation to what's happening round about him and it's not in relation to the people round about him. The knowledge that he fastens his mind on is knowledge about himself. In these verses, Jesus is called out as having what we would refer to as a moment of self-awareness. Because what is identified as his thoughts is very much a revelation of what Jesus understood about 
himself. So let's build a picture of what's going on in Jesus' mind and heart. It's just before the Passover festival. He knows that the hour has come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He knows what all of that entails. He knows about Judas's betrayal and the prompting of Satan in Judas's heart. And he's about to call that out in the open, round the table, in front of everyone. But he also knows that the pain and torture and brutality are directly in front of him. And as all of these things are flooding his thinking, it's the time of the Passover and what all of that means and the passing over and the shedding of the blood to protect the people of Israel and how he's going to shed his blood as he knows that the betrayal is about to happen, as he knows that that's going to lead to brutality and pain and anguish, as all of these things flood his thinking, Jesus takes time to anchor his thoughts. As he understands the divine sovereign plan of God, as he sees the circumstances around him shift towards what is going to be the most difficult experience of his human existence, his journey towards the cross. As what is before him seems difficult and daunting and troubling, he stops himself and he anchors his thoughts. This is a gift to us, this insight, this verse, to see this in him. He's about to face some real difficulty. And we are gifted with this insight into this moment where he pauses and he anchors his thoughts. And he anchors his thoughts in this. I know who I am. I know where I've come from. And I know where I'm going. This is the knowledge that is presented to us in verse 3 when Jesus says, Jesus, or the Bible says, Jesus knew that the Father put all things under his power, that he come from God and was returning to God. Let's break that down and look at what Jesus knew. Jesus knew that the Father put all things under his power. He knew who he was. He knew that he had come from God. He knew where he had come from. And he also knew that he was returning to God, so he knew where he was going. He anchors his thoughts in this then. I know who I am. I know where I've come from. I know where I'm going. And in this significant, pivotal moment in scriptures, he gets ready to show the full extent of his love. As he begins to journey to the cross and the final stage of his life and ministry, he intentionally and purposely anchors his thoughts. He anchors his soul. He fastens his mind and he fastens the contents of his innermost being and he anchors his thoughts in the truth. I know who I am. I know where I've come from. I know where I'm going. I wonder, could that simple thought process be what saw Jesus operate with what seemed like complete serendipity throughout his entire earthly ministry? Is this what saw him walk into confrontational moments unfazed? Is this what saw him face constant demanding crowds that didn't let up or seem to give him peace even just for one second? He crossed the river, the, the lake on a boat and they waited for him on the other side. He, he went out into the countryside and they followed him to the countryside. He went up a mountain and they climbed up the hillside behind him. Never letting up, never giving him a moment, but yet he responds time and time and time again. No frustration, no anger. Was this what saw him show utter graciousness to the disciples when they were slow to learn and tardy and grasping kingdom dynamics? Was this what saw him retort with what seemed to be limitless patience with the religious leaders who were challenging him and challenging his motives over and over and over again? 
Was this what saw him navigate the wilderness with the temptations and the devil and respond with a sense of control and not a jot of instability or a lack of restraint? I know who I am. I know where I've come from. I know where I'm going. If you think through Jesus' public ministry and the account of his life that we read in the Gospels, it always seems to be that Jesus has this inner stability. That meant he was not defined by his surroundings, rather he tended to define them or even change their definition. Equally, his emotional state was not determined by happenings or events or circumstances. He wasn't a loose cannon. He didn't have flippant knee-jerk reactions. His emotions were in order. His behavior was somewhat orderly. He maintained at all times this emotional, mental equilibrium. There wasn't a moment when the disciples had reason to think, oh, oh Jesus is losing it. Someone's phones went off in the middle of his sermon and he's about to lose it. <laughs> there wasn't a moment when the Pharisees were goading him and they thought, oh, he's about to push, get pushed over the edge. He's about to go full tonto on this religious leader. We can see it building in his face. There was never a moment when the disciples were worried or concerned or had to go around after him and try and explain his mood or his behavior. The disciples never had a moment where they thought of him, he has lost his mind. He is out of control. Well, we might think there was the temple clearance. He went a bit full tonto there, didn't he? But actually, one of the Gospels records how Jesus goes into the temple, sees what's going on, leaves the temple, and takes time to carefully construct a whip to clear the temple out. This isn't a madman out of control. He is firmly in control. He has the presence of mind to weave this whip together. He's not insane. He's not unhinged. He's not unable to regulate his temper. Equally, there wasn't a moment when the disciples thought he's depressed or he's overwhelmed with anxiety. The Bible doesn't really give us records of moments that would have suggested that Jesus was in a mood or that he had a bad day or he was hard to be around because of mood swings or behaviors. Through it all, it just seems like he keeps his human emotions and he keeps his reactions in check. And this is really challenging because personally speaking, I always grapple and battle with the fact that there are moments when my character tears down what my gifting builds up. And I know that I know that that's not just a challenge for those of us that are in ministry. It's a, a very real living tension for every single one of us. There can be moments when the human frailty of our characters and our attitudes disqualify us from the purpose of God in those moments. But the thing is, Jesus never had those moments. There was never a moment when the outworking of God's agenda was thwarted by his character. He was the perfect human. Could this be because of the self-awareness that he possessed? Could it be because he anchored himself in this? I know who I am. I know where I've come from. And I know where I'm going. Is this the reason that he functioned with utmost stability in an unstable world? Could it be because as we read here, he regularly anchored his thoughts 
Like we get that glimpse into this moment where we're told what's going on in his heart and his thoughts, and we see him anchor himself. And it's interesting that the revelation of knowledge within Jesus comes straight after the Judas revelation in the text. Because the two hearts are like complete antithesis of one another. Judas did not have self-awareness. He was self-serving and self-indulgent. He didn't anchor himself. He didn't anchor his thought life. He didn't anchor his character and his reactions. And as a result, his character and his reactions did railroad moments. His lack of stability led to this spiritual immaturity in moments. This woman pouring out her alabaster jar at his feet, that could have been better spent on serving and feeding the poor and, and the hungry. His lack of spiritual maturity provided an inability to connect with the kingdom and see with spiritual eyes. His lack of self-awareness, his instability also led to spiritual temptation. It led to the influence of the devil and you could ultimately say it led to demonic possession. But in contrast, Jesus was not impacted by any of these things because he anchored his heart. I know who I am. I know where I've come from. I know where I'm going. Reading this teaches us the importance of anchoring the thought life and letting such grounding guide our behaviors and our daily journeys. Before journeying into the most difficult season of his life, Jesus, the perfect human being, anchored himself in truth. Do we anchor ourselves in truth? If we are to walk as Jesus walked, and we are to be his body and therefore embody his presence on the earth, then that means that we need to learn the huge importance of taking truth and letting it shape us, letting it take hold of us, letting it anchor us on a daily basis. If the most perfect human being on the face of the earth had to anchor himself, how much more must we? And the truth that we anchor in, of course, is the word. We must anchor ourselves in the word of God and let it shape us and take hold of us. But perhaps we need to allow the word of God to teach us who we are, where we've come from, and where we're going. As he anchored himself in truth, so must we. And we focus ourselves, our focus today on the first truth that Jesus anchored himself in. He knew who he was. And perhaps that's better understood as he knew whose he was. He was the son of God. The creator was his father. And it's interesting that in this statement that reveals Jesus' knowledge, it says Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power. Language is of interest. It doesn't say here Jesus knew that God had put all things under his power or that the creator had put all things under his power or that Yahweh or Jehovah had put all things under his power. No, specifically it says the Father has put everything under his power. Now when we read this, we tend to focus on that everything is under his power bit because that's a foundational truth about who Jesus is. He is the firstborn over all creation. In him, is the supremacy of God. He, he is the ruler of all things. He is an authority over all things. In him, all things hold together. His name, as we've already worshipped, is the name above every name, placing him in the position of utmost authority in the universe. 
And this verse in John 13 points to that foundational truth of all that we believe about who Jesus is. But here is the big truth. Who Jesus is, is rooted in his relationship to the Father. Because it's the Father who has put all things under his power. And therefore, it's the Father who has made him who he is. So actually, the first thing that comes out from this statement is not so much an understanding of the identity and power of Jesus, but actually it's an understanding of the identity and the supremacy and the sovereignty of the Father. Because God is the ultimate reality and power in the universe, Jesus knows that all things are under His power because the Father has said so and the Father has made them so. Jesus knows who He is because He knows whose He is. And who He is is rooted in His relationship with the Father. There is humility within equality here. There's an utter dependency that Jesus is not backwards and calling out and even takes time to focus his mind on. He didn't think to himself, everything is under my power because I am awesome. He didn't say everything is under my power because I'm just flipping marvelous. He attributes who he is to the Father and to his relationship with him. The Father has made him the ultimate authority on earth. He is anchored then not in who he has made himself, but in who God has purposed him to be. And as we learn from this, we have to understand that our anchoring cannot be in self-achieved goals or ambition. We cannot ground ourselves in who we have decided to be, or who we claim to be, or who we have ambition to be and want to be. We have to anchor ourselves in who God calls us to be, who He purposes us to be. We have to understand that who we are is rooted in a relationship to the Father. It's not so much about who we are, it's actually about whose you are. The Father has to shape the anchor that we attach to the soul. In fact, He has to be the anchor for the soul. And it's really important that we note that this statement or thought knowledge of Jesus actually speaks as much about the Father as it does about Jesus. The Father putting everything under Jesus' power speaks more about the power and the status of the Father than it does about Jesus. That is incredibly profound. This knowledge that calls out who Jesus is actually is calling out who the Father is. So we need to anchor ourselves then in whose we are. We are the Father's. And here is who the Father is. Here is who my Father is. And here is who your Father is. The Father is the creator of the heavens and the earth, who holds the seas in the hollow of his hand and measures out the galaxies with the span of his hand. He measures out the galaxies with a high five. He never slumbers nor sleeps. He does not get tired or weary. His power is limitless and his love is measureless. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He rides on the wings of the wind. He is everlasting and he's slow to anger and he is abounding in love and he is rich in mercy and his wisdom and understanding nobody can fathom. 
From age to age, he is the same. He calls out the starry host and names them one by one. He is without equal. He is unsurpassed. He is unconquered. He cannot be stopped. He cannot be restrained. And he doesn't know how to lose. He is great in power. He is mighty in strength. And he knows your name and he shaped your frame. And he's marked out every single day, every single hour, every single minute, every single second of your life. He has designed and decreed every breath that you will breathe and every step that you will take. And the hairs on your head are numbered and he catches your tears in a bottle. He sings over you with rejoicing. He quiets you with his love. He covers you with his feathers and he draws you to repentance with his loving kindness. He forgives all your sins. He will heal all your diseases. He crowns you with love and compassion. Who you are is because of whose you are. The God of all the earth is your Father. And who and what He calls you to be is who and what you will be. What He ordains for your life will come to pass because His promises are true. And his word doesn't return void. And the reason for that is because he's boss. He's the ultimate power and reality in the earth. And we belong to him in Christ Jesus. We must anchor ourselves in this. Jesus, moments before steering into the most difficult season in his life, anchored himself in God. He reminded himself, he focused the thoughts on this profound truth. The Father has put all things under his power. He anchored in who he was and in whose he was. So when we find ourselves steering into or navigating through difficult and uncertain seasons in life, we need to pause and take time to attach to the anchor. That was Caesar's journey with equilibrium. That was Caesar's journey with serendipity, that which allows us to navigate through even the fiercest and the bleakest of experiences with peace in the soul and hope in the heart is to anchor the soul in who we are and in whose we are. The God of Jacob is your fortress. The Most High is your shelter. He hides you in the shelter and the shadow of his wings. He is your refuge and your shield. He is your glory and the lifter of your head. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it won't come near you. It might look like you're surrounded, but in that moment, he surrounds you with his love and he sets out a dining table in the presence of your enemies and says, pull up a chair, son. Pull up a chair, daughter. Let's eat. But none of that, none of that means that you will never journey through stuff. It doesn't mean that there won't be pain and there won't be difficulty. It doesn't mean that there won't be hurt and there won't be worry. There will be. Because Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. Most definitely, your journey and my journey will involve dark and difficult times. Belonging to God and Jesus does not mean that we are exempt from hard and difficult and trying times. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you do not get a pass on illness and diagnosis or pain and hurt. But Jesus' advice is this. In this world, you will have trouble, but 
It's a big butt. I like big butts and I cannot lie. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome this world. His advice is to take heart. The Greek word there for take heart means to be of good cheer and to be of good courage. Jesus says, in the midst of trouble, I want you to have courage, but specifically, I want you to have good courage. That makes me think at times, is there bad courage? Where my mind goes to that point is, well, yes, because there's arrogance. And arrogance is based on our perception of our own ability. Whereas courage, according to the dictionary, courage is acting upon one's beliefs and convictions. Have good courage. Courage is found in the belief of whose we are. It's when we act on that conviction. Jesus encourages us that we can have courage and we can have courage that is good even in the strongest and fiercest of storms. There is an anchor for the soul. There is a hope that holds us certain and steadfast and that is in whose we are. We are his. In this world, we will have trouble, but take heart because he who holds us in the palm of his hand, he has overcome the source of the trouble. He has overcome the world and he is a world changer. And here is the big thing that we need to grasp. Is yes, there will be tough times, and yes, there will be amazing and wonderful times, and yes, there will just be plain, ordinary times when we're not even sure what's happening in the journey of life. But who we are is not determined by what we go through. The circumstances, the influences, the people, the opportunities do not determine who we are. Who we are is determined by whose we are. So we have to anchor ourselves in that truth. When we have faith and trust in Jesus, we belong to God the Father. So we anchor ourselves in him. We lean into him. And we let him and our belief and faith in him as the greatest force and influence in this world, we let that determine the journey and the outcome and we let that define our identity. In other words, we trust him. And that's key. Jesus' revelation statement called out what the Father had done for him. He had placed all things under his power. Jesus is grounded in the knowledge of the Father's control. However, he does more than just know that. He trusts it. He understands and anchors himself in the understanding that God is the ultimate force at work. He decides and he determines all things. He knows that God has placed all things under his power. And not only does he know it, but he actually trusts it to be true. That which shapes his knowledge, that which guides and grounds his thought process, is that in which he has no doubt at all. He unreservedly trusts the Father. He trusts who the Father is, that he is sovereign and in control, and he trusts what the Father says and what the Father does. He puts everything under his power. It would seem then that the key to anchoring the thoughts and grounding oneself in life is to develop a lifestyle of trust. And trust is an action. 
It's also a feeling. But both the action and the feeling is rooted in knowledge. So it's a thought process. It's a mindset. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. It starts with making a decision to trust. That's a choice. The decision to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. The only way that that can be outworked is when we lean not in our own understanding, but we choose instead to possess a different mindset, a different thought process, a thought process that acknowledges who he is and therefore who we are. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he's going to direct your path. It's about not just having a choice, not just shaping the mindset, but letting that outwork in a position of utmost dependency. We rely upon him, we trust in him, we anchor on to him to direct all of our tomorrows. Jesus, in some sense, he embodied this truth from Proverbs. His dependency, his behavior, his thought processes, his declarations flowed out of the utmost trust in God the Father as the supreme being in the universe, but yet also one that directed his path and his footsteps. He anchored in this truth. The truth makes God and who he is his anchor. But it's interesting that the revelation that calls out the greatness of Jesus actually points to the greatness of of the Father. And this reminds us that Jesus actually says the whole reason that he's on the earth is to point to the Father. He is the way to the Father. He is the gate. He is the door. He exists to bring glory to the Father and to point to the Father. And this revelation that is brought out to us not so much calls out the greatness of Jesus, but actually points to the greatness of the Father. And that is a really important lesson for us because that which grounds us should be that which points to and reveals the greatness of the Father. That which anchors the soul should be that which calls out utter dependency and humility in relation to the Father and actually spells out that He is our anchor and grounding in life. The soul's anchor should point to the anchor of the soul. We need to live in such a way that we are anchored in our thoughts we are grounded in our life, that we are grounded in our character. We need to live in such a way that we trust in him as a choice, that we lean not on our own understanding, but transform the mindset and the thought process to depend upon him and rely upon him and acknowledge him in all of our ways, that in everything that we do and everything that we are, that we point to the anchor of the soul. In this season, in church and life and ministry, as we said last week, that feels quite icky. It's so important that we anchor ourselves. It's so important that we anchor ourselves as individuals and that we anchor ourselves as a church. And maybe you're here today and you're journeying through some stuff. Maybe you're in the midst of some stuff right now. Maybe you've come out the other side of it and are carrying the bruises and the wounds from the beating of the storm or the things that have been said or done, it's so important that we pause and anchor the thoughts and anchor the soul. Jesus was about to face brutality, torture, ridicule, 
humiliation. He was about to be betrayed by someone that he showed nothing but love and acceptance and care towards. He was about to journey through the most difficult experience of his human existence. And he pauses. And he goes deep. And before he does anything, he anchors himself in truth. I know who I am. I know where I've come from. I know where I'm going. Child of God, today let's pause before we take one further step and just anchor the soul. In this season and in this moment, as life seems to be quite difficult, as spiritually things are hard in the spiritual places, we pause, we take a deep breath, before we do anything, we anchor. I know who I am because I know whose I am. I know where I've come from. He has brought me to this place. And I know where I'm going because he holds me in the palm of his hand. Who you are is not determined by what you do and what you go through. Who you are is not decided by ambition or career or status or labels. Who you are is determined by whose you are. You are a child of the living God. You are loved. He is your father. You are his child. And he's got this because he's got you and he'll never let you go. Just take a moment. Anchor. Anchor your thoughts. Come near to us, Father, as we anchor in your fatherhood over our lives. Whose we are is because of what Jesus has done, right? He died on the cross and he rose from the dead. He forgave us of our sins, brought us into a union with God that we have access to where he is, which is in the manifest presence of God. How great the love the Father has lavished on us that we are children of God and that love was expressed through Jesus. 